Okay, so I want to start today by talking a bit about uh, the white privilege, uh, white privilege as a theory of racism. Um, and I say a theory because it's not the only theory of racism, but it is one of them. So most of the time when people talk about white privilege, what they're doing is calling out racism, talking about experiences, reflecting on racism. And of course, we stand with people while they do that. And we defend the right of people to talk about in ra racism in whatever ways that they, you know, can and, and however they start. However, it is also important for us to think about the, the specific theory of racism that that kind of privilege theory gives us and, and where it comes from and who, who kind of pushes these ideas. And, I, and to start talking about that, I actually wanted to talk about this classic quote from Marx. People would have heard, heard his quote, it's from the German, German ideology, and he says that the, the same people who control the means of production, you know, this Marxist idea of the people who control the factories and everything, you know, and, and the offices and everything, also control the means of mental production. That's what he says. And the idea of this is that there are certain people who, who decide to write a book, the people who have time and energy to write books, the people who spend, decide who they're going um, spend to spend that time on. So to start, to start talking about this, I want to talk about the diversity industry. So capitalists spend a lot of money and increasing money on diversity consultants, diversity positions within their companies. So to give, give you an idea of that, uh, since the election of Trump in just two years from 2016 to 2018, the, these kinds of diversity uh, positions advertised on Indeed.com increased by 35%. It's an estimated, there's all these particular special kind of companies and industries that exist to do these kind of diversity uh, consulting tasks. And that is an $8 billion industry and that's predicted to double by 2026. So it's a huge industry, but in the words of Pamela Newkirk, who wrote this really, she's like a black journalist uh, writing about the failure of diversity, this diversity industry. And she says, conspicuously lacking, however, is the diversity. Google spent $300 million over just two years and black representation in the tech roles, as opposed to in kind of cleaning roles, uh, in, is in the US where black people make up around 13% of the population increased marginally from 1.5% up to 2%. So that is nowhere near what it should do, and that's after years and years of effort. And so she, she started looking into what is actually driving, the, driving this diversity industry if it's so failure at actually such a failure at actually promoting diversity. And she, and she says that it acts as a shield against successful bias lawsuits. So diversity, and she argues that diversity positions actually save companies millions. And to give you an idea of why that is, in order to win, it's incredibly difficult to prove that you've been discriminated against. This is in the US context, discriminated against on the basis of race or gender, you, because you have to prove the intent to discriminate. And that intent, that intent is very important. To give you an idea of the financial reasons, in 2020, a record 1,500 lawsuits in the US happened. And if you look at just the top 10 lawsuit settlements, they totaled 1.6 billion last year and then in 2017 up to 2.8 billion. So this is enough money, to, if, if you're one of those 10 companies, to cripple your company, to, to bankrupt you. And this is one, one of the serious things. If you compare that to hiring a diversity consultant, which is gonna cost one year's salary for one person, uh, or even less if it's just for one special mandatory training session, uh, it is cheap as chips. Capitalism has a problem, and it's not racism, it's racism lawsuits. And so that's why it's figured out a, a, way, a way to deal with this. To give you an idea, I, I was looking up the statistics. Man, when, when you, there was this study done of all of these mandatory, mandatory um, training of managers to try and Im improve, improve the diversity, and it, and it found that actually decreased the percentage of black women 
in, in management positions, and it decreased all, by, by 9%, which is quite considerable, and Hispanic men and women by 4 to 5%. So these are, these are, these are like incredibly failed. What does all of this have to do with privilege theory? Remarkably a lot. So when I started researching this talk, I thought it'd be good to start with this like best-selling book that I knew during Black Lives Matter, people suddenly, suddenly wanted to read about racism, learn about racism. And the top-selling book was a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And it's, and it's an interesting book, but it is something, page one, I opened it up and she starts talking about her experience as a white woman who is a diversity consultant. The next book that I went to was Understanding White Privilege by Frances Kendall, who is another white woman writing as a diversity consultant. The theory of white privilege actually goes back to a woman named Peggy McIntosh, who is a, an academic who wrote in the 1980s a, a, an essay called White Privilege and Male Privilege. And it's kind of littered through all of the white, white privilege um, ideas. She was, a, she was a college professor who uh, basically was having these repeated conferences about how to include women's studies into curriculums. And she found, uh, she came up with this theory that every fall, naturally, the men would come to disagree with her about including, including, it in the, including women's studies in the undergraduate curriculum, because it was too full. We, we can't, we have to focus on the core, the, re the really important things. And then after preying on it, um, she decided that there was a um, correspondence between the white male professors and, and white female professors and between what she was experienced, the criticisms that she was experienced as a white woman from black women working with her and other white women like her. So the theory she came up with was that racism acted as kind of an invisible knapsack. So she, she came up with this list of 46 things that she was kind of not conscious of as a white person. Things like, you know, she's never asked to speak for her race. Uh, she's able to find a house that she likes in an area that she likes. Um, and she, she's able to see her race represented on TV and reflecting on the racial implications of that. So as a theory, I think it's two things. On the one hand, it's a description of racism. It's, it's talking about the way that racism impacts her life, even in a highly segregated society. It's not just that racism impacts black people, it also impacts white people and how, how they experience it, people of all races. But it's also an explanation. She's trying to explain why it is that uh, people adopt racist, say racist things, uh, allow racist states of affairs. And that explanation is that they are advantaged by this system. They have these privileges. So I want to talk about three features now of this white privilege theory of racism. So the first feature I want to talk about is that it is individual. It focuses on individuals and their investment in the system. This means that it is very bad at explaining systemic racism. So for example, when, when, she's, when, when, when privilege theorists uh, like Robin D'Angelo and, and many of these other people try to explain uh, racism, systemic racism, for example, in the police, in the media, they, they say it comes down to the systemic representation of white people. And all of these uh, positions have been predominantly white for a very long time. But the problem with that is that the police are not racist simply because there's a lot of white people there. It's because of what they have to do in society. They have to walk around the streets harassing Aboriginal people and they learn from, the, from just doing that trade, no matter what, what colour or creed they come from, they learn the necessity of racism to explain what they're doing. It's also important that representation isn't enough. We need to, we need to, we need to fight to actually change these systems, not just to change the faces at the top of the system, whether that's the media or the police or whatever. It's consistent with kind of more of an individual capitalist kind of uh, changes. It's, it's ch black faces in high places is consistent with leaving the system intact and not fundamentally, fundamentally changing it. 
So the second feature I want to talk about is that it's ahistorical, by which I mean it kind of presents race, racism and white privilege as these general features that, that are across all societies. This makes it incredibly poor at explaining racism in societies that are not the USA or even other Western societies. For example, how do you explain racism in India, in Malaysia, where it doesn't just come down to white people being, being in positions of power. It also kind of it ignores the specific features of racism. It was literally designed by an analogy with sexism, being like, what if racism is exactly the same as sexism? The reality is it's not, and, and, and racism has its own history, which I'm going to touch on in a second. It's not very good at explaining the changes in racism, so it, it can explain, um, it emphasises the inevitability of racism. And this can be, a, like, if you're a diversity trainer, this is very useful. You want to go beyond kind of people saying, oh, you know, I was raised progressive, uh, lots of my friends are black, whatever. You want to say that inevitably your, your perspective and on life has been shaped by racism and that you should genuinely reflect on how deeply it, it has impacted you. And so that's kind of an advantage, but it doesn't at all talk about how ideas change and therefore what we can do best to change people's racist ideas. Uh, whereas a more kind of a progressive theory of racism understands that ideas change often we're most open to change when we're fighting together with someone, when we have a common interest in fighting and when ideas are challenged in that context. Finally, I just want to say one of the main features is that it fundamentally def uh, defines racism um, and all other systems of oppression about advantage. It suggests that some people are advantaged and disadvantaged by the system. So in, the, in this, um, this best-selling best -selling book, she says, individual whites may be against racism, but they still benefit from the system. And she talks about how people are invested in a system of racism. The problem is that the, the same system, that uh, the same racist system is also, a, is also a sexist system, it's also a capitalist system, and it, and it oppresses us all. The concept of privilege can be a bar barrier to solidarity. If, if your honest analysis is that the, these, those people are, they're workers, but they're white. So they're invested in the racism, but they're disinvested in the capitalism. And, and those workers over there, like you, you start to see increasing marginality and especially when you start incorporating straight privilege, cisgender privilege, all of these kinds of things, you can see yourself as a minority within a minority within a minority and you increasingly see that everybody else is invested in parts of the system and that they can't be consistent allies. Um, and that can be really problematic when you're trying to, trying to uh, build solidarity and build, build for real change. In terms of an alternative, I just want to, I want to say that there are, I wanted to touch on the kind of the revolutionary theory of racism to show that there are other theories of racism that I think don't have these disadvantages. The, re the revolutionary theory sees the ideas and the system as fundamentally linked. We obviously agree that ideas and education are very important. We're all sitting in this room talking about, uh, talking about the ideas, but we also say that if the ideas and the system are fundamentally linked, it's not enough to stop with the ideas. To kind of talk about what, where those ideas come from, I just want to talk briefly about the history of racism. So racism exists essentially to justify the inequalities that exist in life. Racism was invented in the 1700s and 1800s um, as a very novel idea in, in places like Virginia and Maryland, where slave owners had to try and justify how it was in a system of capitalism, which is supposedly free and equal, where, where, where we, all, we, we all see each other, one person gets one vote, etc. Why, how it was justifiable that they had, they owned a bunch of slaves. The only way that you can bring together the idea of slavery and the idea of equality for all is to say that black people aren't people. 
Yeah, so what I said just now was not that slavery was the first time, was that this was the first time we had racism, which was a system of hierarchy based on, based on race. And this was a whole new idea. In fact, in slave-owning societies, for example, in, in, in Greece, and, and even, you know, people sometimes try to say, oh, you know, slavery already existed in Africa before capitalism, slavery's always existed. This is a really problematic idea. Capitalism fundamentally shifted the nature of, of, of slavery and the nature of, of racism through that process. Instead of slaves being something that you were able to capture, uh, that you had to capture during wars and all of these kinds of things, people became a commodity that were able to be sold at the cheapest price and, 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 and it meant that you had a totally different attitude to your slaves. You just burnt through them if you're a slave, slave owner. And this is kind of the brutality of racism, I think, starts with the br brutality of capitalist slavery in particular. With that idea now of a hierarchy of races, that quickly spread all around the world. And in a place like Australia, our entire history happened after that invention of, of this idea of racism, of a hierarchy of races. And so the entire history of Australian capitalism and invasion has been steeped in uh, its own forms of racism, from indigenous dispossession and trying to justify that, from trying to justify the fact that Australia's rulers were terrified of a Chinese invasion, so they had to come up with this white Australia policy to lock out all of the Chinese people. There's an incredible history of anti-Japanese racism, and people would know in the last 20 years uh, how we've seen a huge rise in Islamophobia. So there's a whole history of trying to justify the, the brutality of the world that we live in through this theme of racism. Another important part of this theory is that in this theory, racism comes not from ordinary, ordinary people. It's not built into the system. It comes from the ruling class that is seeking to divide, to distract, and to justify. We see this all the time, whether it's kind of SCOMO, whipping up fears about Lebanese and Sudanese people and refugees. It, it's used as an intentional tool uh, to, to distract and divide. And it means that we have a different perspective on the working class. Instead of the working class, uh, particularly like, I guess, the white working class being inevitably uh, bought off by racism, we see the, them as having a fundamental interest in smashing uh, slavery. I recently read the amazing book uh, by Eric Williams about capitalism and slavery, where he talks about the triangular trade that created capitalism, where there's this three-point triangle in, in his kind of way of looking at it. You have Britain that you know, has, a, has a military, it exports, um, ex exports its huge military to Africa to capture a huge amount of slaves, who are then brought to the new world, forced to work on plantations where indigenous people are dispossessed. And this produces a triple stimulus to capitalism, and this is how the capitalist system started. Um, and this is kind of the, the, the brutality. But importantly in this theory, all three groups of those people, the workers in Britain, the black people who were enslaved, and the First Nations people uh, who, had, who had their land stolen, all are oppressed by the same system and therefore all have an interest in smashing that system. And the final thing I just want to talk about um, is that capitalism and racism are baked in together. Rather than seeing them as separate systems operating kind of in a dual system theory, uh, we see them as fundamentally linked. And that means that the simple operation of capitalism itself, as long as it remains intact, will intensify racism. So we saw this you know, through the Obama years when we had for the first time a black president in the United States, something we, many of us thought would never be possible um, or, or, or never felt possible, I guess, due, due to the extent of racism. Yet in that period, we saw the beginning of Black Lives Matter. We saw, you know, Trayvon Martin. We saw, we, we saw that the inequalities of the police, the, the, the racial, huge racial wealth gap, 
that the existence of neoliberalism continued to, to uh, disproportionately impact people of colour and black people. And with Black Lives Matter, the huge movement that has fundamentally shaped world politics starting in the US, we saw that it, it, was, it was about the police, it was about defunding the police, but it also interacted with the huge inequalities in the health system that meant that black people were disproportionately dying from COVID, as well as uh, in the workplace where black people were doing more of the jobs that led them to get COVID, as well as lose, losing jobs uh, disproportionately. So yeah, to me, this is just an example of how the capitalist system and the racist, and the racist system are fundamentally linked. So just to finish off now, what are we actually going to do about it? So first of all, what, what, what do we have to do about racism right now? We need to fight the racists. It's, we, 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 we do need to just, yeah, I suppose we do need to reflect on racism. I was reading um, Malcolm X's biography and he talks about how it took him a lifetime to kind of unlearn the, unlearn the racism, the internalized racism that he had. And I think all of us absolutely can always, always re reflect on how deeply racism has impacted. But I do think we also need to actually fight the system that produces these ideas. And if we don't do that, we're not gonna ever be successful in defeating racism. So we need to fight the racists, whether that's fighting Nazis when they're, when they're building in, in unprecedented numbers in, in current society, and also means fighting Morrison, his refugee politics and his, his racist, racist division. It means we have to argue against working class racism when we see it, when we're fighting together for conditions, when we're fighting together against racism, we argue against racism wherever we see it. And we, argue, and we fight to dismantle the actual racist system that produces it all. We fight, whether that's police uh, brutality, like we'll be talking about later in Yundamu, whether that's gas expansions onto Gomorrah country, or, or whether that's kind of the racist border regime that Australia is so infamous for. We also fight for a socialist anti-racist perspective. So for example, in my union right now, we're about to go on strike in a few weeks. And not only are we fighting against casualization, are we fighting against um, uh, these kinds of things which do disproportionately uh, impact Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people at my university are about 40% uh, overrepresented in, in casual compared to the in casual employment compared to the rest. So fighting against casualization is important. But we also fight against the inequalities that exist in the workforce. We're fighting for Aboriginal people to get cultural safety leave so that they can go and do when they're called upon by the community or by the university to do a hundred more welcome, welcome to countries. This should not be on their own time. They should get paid time to do this. It's about winning cultural safety. And we're also fighting, forcing our university to change their shameful uh, refusal to employ Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are massively underrepresented in the university system. And so we're, trying to, we're fighting, the university is refusing, but we're fighting for them to not have a vague target, but that they're gonna meet the target and they will get a fair representation of Aboriginal people in our university. There's a whole bunch of more examples that we're gonna talk about all through the weekend. Uh, for example, uh, you know, we're not just fighting against the gas expansions in solidarity with Gomorrah people, we're all also fighting, uh, bringing up working class issues in that campaign, talking about how it is that um, we need to fight for an alternative so that people actually have, so that we address the economic insecurity that people have that the capitalists try to use to force Aboriginal people to, to agree to these losses of country and in all kinds of ways. And finally, we fight to end capitalism because you can't smash capitalism without smashing racism and you can't smash racism without smashing capitalism.